Welcome to Socialist Revolution Podcast. My name is Antonio. I'm Bryce. I'm Tom. And we are editors at Socialist Revolution Magazine. And we recently published a Frequently Asked Questions article about mutual aid, specifically Marxism, Bolshevism, and the mutual aid strategy, where we try to take up this question of where this idea came from. There's a lot of recent buzz around mutual aid. Is it something that can transform society? Is it a revolutionary tactic that we can use to change the world, to overthrow capitalism? That America will never be a socialist country. country. Attitudes are changing towards socialism. We believe the only solution is the establishment of a workers' government on a socialist program. I'm very excited about this uh, discussion because, you know, the whole strategic debate that's been happening in recent years shows that there are more young people than ever asking, what should we be doing? How do we you know, how do we overthrow capitalism? And I think that that's obviously a big transition from the way people were talking about socialism and capitalism just a few years ago. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I think even just a, a few years ago, being a socialist, you'd get a lot more just, you know, people were puzzled at that. It seemed that we were no longer in a period where socialism was relevant as an idea. Now, I think since 2016 in particular, there's just been an explosion of interest in socialism and so a lot of the questions people are asking are less about whether socialism could work in principle, whether it's compatible with human nature, those kinds of questions. And uh, a whole new generation is asking, how do we achieve socialism? How, you know, what, what can we do day to day to advance the fight for socialism? Right. And what does it mean to achieve socialism as well? It's another big question at the yeah. heart of the strategy debate is, you know, socialism in our lifetime, does that mean the revolutionary overthrow of capitalism? Or does that mean electing more people to Congress on perhaps the Democratic Party ballot who might sometimes describe themselves as socialists and pass this or that piece of worker-friendly legislation? I mean, what does it mean to achieve socialism? And I think that the mutual aid current is one of the many answers that we're clearly encountering a lot. Yeah, one of the exciting things about a lot of people looking to the ideas of mutual aid is that it is a, an attempt by people who are newly engaged in politics to try to figure out what is the best way forward, right? Um, like Antonio, you were mentioning the, you know, the, this question of uh, is, is the way forward to elect a lot of, you know, people who call themselves socialists as Democrats? Is that the way forward? In actual fact, I think there's a there's a, a wing of the mutual aid movement, if you if you want to call that which is actually reacting against that, right? They don't see that as the way forward, right? They're trying to figure out another path, right? They're trying to, I think, tackle some some major questions, like how do we help people now? That's one issue. How do we, how do we build from a small force into a larger force? And in, very important is how we don't get co-opted by the system. These are, I think, critical questions that are being taken up by mutual aid. Right. There's definitely different ways of approaching the question of mutual aid, and it's it's presented in different ways. I mean, I think the current of mutual aid that we're most interested in is, you know, people who consider themselves revolutionary socialists, and they want to overthrow capitalism, 
And they're looking for a way to move towards that. They're looking for a way to take action on a local level to actually move towards changing society. Um, there are others who approach mutual aid uh, without that specific goal or, you know, w without necessarily a, a revolutionary ambition as a way to, you know, make a positive contribution for their neighbors or to, you know, establish social connections with people on their block. I mean, it's it's not always presented as a revolutionary strategy, but for us, as part of the debate on strategy, I think that's the the definition that we're most interested in. One of the resources we used when we were preparing this uh, FAQ on mutual aid was a book by Dean Spade called Mutual Aid, Building Solidarity During This Crisis. It seems to be kind of the, the go-to manual on mutual aid that's come out since 2020. And the basic elements that are laid out in his definition of mutual aid is that we're talking about projects where people are coming together to meet their survival needs. Also, building a shared understanding of why people do not have what they need. Mutual aid projects mobilize people, develop solidarity, and build movements. And these are projects that are participatory. They're solving problems through collective action rather than waiting for saviors. That's kind of the thrust, that, you know, this definition that's, that's being put forward. So I guess I would ask, what other definitions are we encountering for mutual aid? What, what types of mutual aid as a concept do we seem to be running into in the movement when we're discussing with people on the streets and at protests and so on? Yeah, I think mutual aid is a bit hard to define in just one sentence, but uh, but I, th I think that gets at it. Also, if you look at Wikipedia's definition, I think actually is is pretty uh, you know straightforward and gives an idea. They say that it's a, a voluntary reciprocal exchange of resources and services for mutual benefit, but it tends to be characterized by programs or, or projects in which communities voluntarily and collectively pool their resources and, and distribute and help each other with uh, oftentimes concrete needs that come up. Like there, there actually was a pretty significant development in, in mutual aid networks in the early months of the COVID pandemic because there was a lot of supplies and everything and, and you know, it was a very, very new situation. And so in a lot of countries, you saw these neighborhood mutual aid networks crop up. So, so I think that's one way you can look at it. And there's also more a kind of political strategic argument for it as well. Right, right. So, I mean, obviously, one example is the, the kind of spontaneous, organic response that you might see in working class communities to a, a disaster or, or when the pandemic meant a total breakdown of, you know, supplies. I think there's something very um, respectable about people wanting to help each other, wanting to you know, help meet people's needs and form some kind of community. But that's different from overthrowing capitalism, isn't it? That's a, that's you can't really conflate those kinds of efforts with a revolutionary strategy, which begs the question, what does it take to overthrow capitalism or how what uh, alternative way would we approach that question of how to make a transformation of society? Yeah, no, and it's a good question. When, when you have a lot of new people, young people coming into the movement, um, they're looking and they're saying, well, look, Marx and Engels lived in the 18, you know, when they first wrote the Communist Manifesto, it was like 1848. And a lot of time has passed since then. Why haven't we been able to get to socialism? What went wrong? And I think some people who were looking at the ideas of mutual aid, they're trying to use that as a tool to try to figure out why we haven't got to the goal that we want to get to. What I, what I think is the, the best way to approach this 
is you have to start with an objective analysis of society. You have to look at what is wrong, why is society the way it is, and what from examining society, both the way it exists today and the way it's uh, it's evolved, what is it that can bring about the change of that society, the transformation of that society? In that sense, um, mutually, just like anything else, should be subjected to analysis and criticism. Is it an effective pathway to change society or is it not? Because if we start from a point of view of I'm for mutual aid, then I think you're going to miss the analysis. You, you have to, if you're going to ultimately be an advocate of mutual aid, it should flow from an objective analysis of society. And the objective analysis should lead you to understand that this is the path forward. Yeah. Coming to conceptualize socialism as, as you know, in the Marxist sense as you know, looking at the means of production. I think one thing that characterizes the new wave of interest in mutual aid too is that it's not necessarily an opposed to that. There are there are people who are interested in the ideas of of Marx and Engels, who are interested in the ideas of Lenin in particular, who are interested in the Russian Revolution, and so they're looking at that tradition. It's you know that is kind of the you know model or the the historical experience that they're going off of. But it, I think it's it's often also too just a question of how do we get from point A to point B. So studying that actual experience, studying the history of of the Russian Revolution. And the lead up informs that too. And, and so you know, one, one reason we uh, took this question up in an FAQ format is because there are so many different angles to it. There's so many different arguments for it. And I think oftentimes to people who are uh, asking about it aren't necessarily dead set on this or that argument. Like there might be someone who, uh, you know, is, is in agreement that it's not a uh, strategy for just building it out to the point that we have these new model societies and, and that builds socialism. But you know, it's, it's just kind of a, a question of what strategy do we need to take socialist ideas to the masses, essentially. And in the debates, I think some of the common arguments that we're hearing for why, you know, socialists need to use a mutual aid tactic, um, well, there's a number of them that come to mind. One of them is that this is a way for socialists to sink roots in society, that the working class won't pay attention to the socialist movement unless it means something concrete and material for them, which is basically an argument that, you know, workers look towards a social force, a political force, if it gives them something material, something concrete, something that's relevant in their lives. Another argument is that this is a way to build a base. You know, this, I mean, base building itself is basically a, a subcurrent, I think, of the mutual aid um, tendency which is saying that if you're going to you know, get enough support in society and go from a small number of activists into a mass force that can carry out a revolution, you need to have some kind of activity that's bringing people in. And often it's these kinds of activist you know, initiatives that are, are proposed as a way to, to do that, community efforts, community gardens, and uh, so on. Other than that, I mean, it's obviously presented often as like, there are urgent things out there we need to address the crisis that people are facing now. We need to do something now. And therefore, you know, we can't spend our time preparing for some future event. We need to take action given the, the limited resources that we have. So um, I, I would mention also that there are those who approach mutual aid as a way of creating alternate institutions to sort of, you know, um, opt out of capitalism or the, this idea that you, the way to create a new society is by creating it bit by bit with, you know, institutions that are unlinked from capitalism. I think that's kind of a more 
extreme and maybe a less common variant of the of the strategic debate. But to just start taking up some of these questions, I mean, let's maybe start from the top. The, the idea that mutual aid is the most effective way for socialists to sink roots in the working class and gain the ear of a broader layer of society, does history confirm that? I mean, is, is that what the Marxist position is about how to win influence among the working class? I think, um, of course, people want to try to find a quick means to an end, right? To try to take a small force and build it into a large force and use some sort of a gimmick or, or a catch-all as a way to, to grow. That if we give people what in effect is cash and prizes, that they're going to you know, become socialists or become influenced by socialists. But in actual fact, I think that's the wrong way to look at it. I think historically, there are try and true methods for socialists to gain influence in the working class, right? First of all, the way socialists gain influence in the working class is by having a correct analysis and a correct program and correct tactics to show the working class the way forward. You know, um, if I'll, I'll give one example, 1934, the Trotskyists in Minneapolis and the Teamsters, right? How did they gain influence? Was it because they gave people things? Was it because they were out, um, you know, giving people free food? Or No, it wasn't for that. It was because they linked themselves up with the struggle of the working class, the struggle to unionize, the struggle to fight for a, a, a good, uh, better wages, better working conditions, better benefits, right? It was through that that the Trotskyists were able to extend their influence in Minneapolis and in the Teamsters Union, right? So you have to have, you start with correct ideas, correct analysis, correct program, correct strategy and tactics. But then before you get there, you also have to ask yourself, do you have the numbers? Because it does take numbers. You can't lead a movement. You can't initiate a, a project with just one or two people. Um, you need a certain number of people, and you need people who are trained in these ideas and methods. So if you don't have the number of people, what we would call cadre, if you don't have that cadre, you have to first attain that cadre, train that cadre, and then you can engage in some of these activities and gain uh, influence. Right. If you want yeah. to speak to the working class, you need to have the kind of force that can that can address millions of people. And obviously that, that begins with having that cadre base, that network of really thoroughly trained political activists who, who know how to agitate effectively, how to relay yeah. a, a revolutionary program. Yeah, and, and I would say Marxists, we, we don't disagree that we do need to sink roots in the working class. That absolutely is you know, a precondition for that. But I think it's a question of how do we sink roots in the working class? What methods and tactics can do that? And then, like, like you were saying, what kind of force is necessary in the first place in order to have enough size, in order, in order to build enough influence to do that? Another way you can kind of look at it, you know, the, the basic starting point, I think, is how is political consciousness formed and how does it change? Because sometimes you see this argument is, uh, is put forth as if we could organize these supply drives or organize free meals, organize brake light clinics, these kinds of programs and, and do it as socialists. And the, the argument is basically that people who previously were not socialists, maybe they're apolitical, maybe they're liberals or whatever, but people who weren't socialists will see socialists doing that and, uh, and that will change their political conception and you know they'll see that the socialists are doing these things. But I think if you actually study the whole history of capitalism and the way movements emerge, the way you know unions are built, the way revolutions are formed, 
it's actually not uh, not the case that people's consciousness is just kind of changed one by one or by one you know small interaction or by one conversation. Really, it's people's whole experience of life under capitalism that that forms someone's political consciousness. And in order to like fundamentally shake that, big events are required. I think we can actually look at recent history to see in some way how, how these kinds of patterns emerge. Like with the emergence of Bernie Sanders, he's not a Marxist, obviously, but but he did have a uh, program. He did have slogans that in a, for a certain period tapped into uh, you know a large layer of people. Tens of millions of people were voting for him. He was calling himself a democratic socialist. And, and I think even there you can see it's not that he, you know, it's not that the campaign was doing these kinds of small um, you know, exchanges or, or uh, you know, providing goods and services. It was more that the whole preceding period, the whole, you know, particularly the post-2008 period, the weak recovery and just the declining state of capitalism produced a generation that was fed up with the status quo, basically. And so someone who was coming in and saying that uh, we needed a political revolution against the billionaires, th- these kinds of things, you know, resonated with people. And so you saw how there, there was a... Uh, you know, a basis of, of support, but, and, and also too, you, you know, you see how by testing that program, basically by testing the, uh, you know, strategy, if you will, of, of making use of the democratic party, people move beyond that, which, you know, it's a bit beyond the, the scope of our discussion today, but, but I, I think, you know, you can look at really the emergence of any political movement and see how uh, it, it's not as simple as just small interactions producing big shifts politically, but, uh, you know, it's prepared. It's, it's a molecular process, as, as Trotsky talked about. And, and if, you know, there's an idea behind this that I think we should address, you know, which I think maybe it's an unconscious concession, but it's a concession to the ruling class. It's this idea that American workers in particular are not open to the ideas of socialism or, are, or cannot be won over to the ideas of socialism, communism, won't make sacrifices for that. So therefore, you have to kind of give people things. You have to kind of trick them into this. But I think that's absolutely incorrect. I think um, even contemporary history shows that the masses are actually open to these ideas. The problem is not the masses. The problem is the leadership. Because I'll I'll just take a point that the Bryce was just bringing up. Take a look at Bernie Sanders in 2016. If Bernie had said, I want to create a mass socialist party right? I'm breaking from the Democrats. I want everybody who wants to join my campaign, you you can sign a card. We're going to set up chapters and uh, democratically elect leadership all around the country. If he had done that in 2016, you would have had a mass socialist party in this country, right? The problem was not the masses. The problem wasn't that there wasn't people who wanted to feed into that. The problem was the leadership wasn't there, right? Bernie himself didn't, you know, didn't have that conception, and he was, and he didn't want to um, to fight the pressure of the the ruling class, which of course their their wrath would have been sent on him, right, <laughs> for sure if he had done that, right? But 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 that that could have put a whole series of things in motion. So I think you know I I would ask the the comrades who are involved in mutual aid to kind of re-examine some of the basis of why they think the way they do, because I think they're making some concessions to the ruling class. You know, another way you can look at this question, too, of just of uh, whether these exchanges, whether these, you know, discussions that would be coming about in mutual aid programs are going to lead to a shift in people's uh, political opinions. I think anyone who is already a socialist can, you know, can ask themselves, why did I become a socialist? And, and everyone I've ever talked to about that 
that's never the answer. It's never that they just, you know, encountered someone who gave them, uh, you know, some goods or certain, you know, a, a small interaction like that. They always talk about this long process of, of drawing conclusions about why society is the way it is, why the fact that capitalism structures society in a certain way. And oftentimes there is like a specific event that kind of tips them over the edge, so to speak, or really kind of crystallizes that. So you can even, you know, just look, look at people who already are socialists. And it's clear that uh, it took a long process to, uh, you know, enact that uh, shift in, in how they think about politics. Yeah, that's a good point. It's not hard to look at the political sea change that's happened in this very country to see that it's driven by historical forces. It's driven by the experience of living, you know, in a decade of crisis and a feeling that you have a social stagnation. Capitalism isn't providing any way forward. I mean, tens of millions of young people, you know, have this attitude of, of capitalism. What has this system ever done for me? You can see that those are the, the kind of conditions that give rise to a, a revolutionary mood or, or a desire to fight back. It's interesting you mentioned Bernie because obviously there's a lot of socialist people today who would probably attribute their awakening to socialism in that period, the the early days of the Sanders campaign, which to his credit did put the term socialism on the table. You know, the, he hinted at class ideas in a way that hadn't been done for, I mean, I don't know when's the last time you had, maybe since the 30s or the, you know, before socialism was a major factor in American politics. And yet he didn't have a consistent, obviously he's no Marxist, he, had no, he didn't have a consistent class approach or any kind of a class independent strategy, which would have made all the difference, as Tom was saying, you know, taking that kind of momentum, that class anger and channeling it into a new political party, that would have blown apart the two-party system. It would have completely turned the tables on American politics. And, and yet, as, as we can see, you know, it wasn't because of anything concrete that he had given anyone. It was an idea. You know, it's, it's ideas that have the potential to uh, move the working class in a, in a revolutionary direction. If I can just say one thing that people need to understand is that a revolution or, or even successful movements cannot happen unless you have the right kind of leadership. Leadership is the key question. Without leadership, the masses can only accomplish so much. It is true that movements can you know, come about as a byproduct of the conditions of capitalism. They can set people into motion and fight. But what any movement can achieve really depends on leadership. And we have to understand the working class um, in, in any country, but in particularly a country the size of the United States, the, the breadth of the United States, the working class is not homogenous. It's not the same. There's all kinds of different layers. You have layers that are drawing advanced conclusions. You have layers that are stuck in, you know, some very backward ideas and prejudices, right? You have all kinds of mixture. And in and that, if we took a picture today, we can also say if we take a picture in ten minutes, that picture is going to change because everything is constantly changing and and and, and having an effect. So that brings really the, the question is, you know, I, I think kind of turns it a little bit on its head for the mutual aid argument, which is that the problem is not the people, the problem is not the masses, the problem is the leadership and the question of building the right kind of leadership. Right. And if you look at any mass movement, the way it erupts is more like a, a force of nature. It's a spontaneous thing that happens. I mean, look at the hours and days after the murder of George Floyd in this country, the way the protest movement erupted 
and spread from one city to the next. It wasn't an organized, you know, there wasn't a mass organization behind that or any campaign or pushing that forward. It happened very spontaneously because millions of people in their thinking were on the same page. They, they wanted to take action. This was the, the straw that broke the, the camel's back. Now, it, once you have a mass movement erupt, then it's a question of, is there a political force that can interact with that mass movement, arm it with ideas, with a program, with a plan of action, so that it's not just like, you know, flooding the banks and then receding back into its old channels, but it actually is the kind of a mass process that ends up transforming society. And that, I mean, what does that mean for us? That means having a, a totally new structure of society in place, having a workers' government, a, a truly democratic one in the sense of the working class itself becomes the force that can, you know, take over the, the Fortune 500 companies, the banks and monopolies, and use that to plan the economy according to people's needs. Yeah, and I, I think the experience of the 2020 uprising is really relevant on this, like like you were saying, because it shows very, very clearly in this case, the dynamics of how movements emerge. And, and that's another one of the arguments, I would say, for mutual aid, kind of related to what we were already talking about, but just this idea of like, how do we, how do we build a movement? How do we like mobilize people? People are frustrated. People are understandably impatient sometimes when there's an ebb in the movement and when it appears like nothing is happening. You know, like in, in principle, it, you could have had people two weeks before that that uh, movement erupted who are socialists who are, you know, asking themselves, like, what what do we do? How do we build this movement? And and at that time, uh, you know, a uh, invisible process, but a very powerful process was happening. Discontent was building and just one more straw on the camel's back caused a complete shift in the situation. And, and so we would say, during times of ebb in the movement, really the task is to prepare for when there's changes in the situation. It's not to try to kind of artificially substitute ourselves for that or artificially try to provide that spark, but to understand that capitalism is uh, is unstable by its very nature, that it's bound to eventually cause political movements. And, and uh, going back to that question of leadership, you know, there, therefore that the task is really to, to prepare that kind of leadership, to prepare that force that can... Uh, take socialist ideas to whatever movements do emerge. If, if I can just add to that, people have to have a conception. There's some people in the mutual, I think maybe uh, Spade was one of them who mentioned that this kind of conception that you can have, like build a movement and it would be like a permanent sustained movement. There is no such permanent sustained movement. <laughs> Movements come and go. And we can explain that in a second. But, but the main thing is that when movements arise... They're always limited by their nature, unless it's a revolutionary movement that leads to a new workers' government and a new society. Unless you get that far, the capitalists are still in power, and nothing is forever. You know, there, there were movements that fought for abortion rights, right? And But they didn't remove capitalism. And so now what are we doing? We're fighting again for abortion rights in this guy. So so it's, it's, a, it's a back and forth. There, there is no movement that will ever be permanent. And will be sustained unless you have a revolutionary movement which transforms the society, you know. And and then the question is, is why can't you have a permanent movement? Why can't the workers just be in a constant struggle? But that's not the way life works. You know, you're working long hours, you're commuting hours, you got family, you got groceries, you got a home life. You can't sacrifice your entire life for every single day, forever and ever and ever. 
um, to, to be politically active. That's why movements arise and then eventually they recede, you know. And it's only it's only going to be a movement that's led by revolutionaries that actually tr- transforms society, that, that leads to workers' government, where, where, you can, where you can finally get over that hill, so to speak. Right. And if you look at any example of, of a mass movement that has erupted in recent years, I mean, even before the Black Lives Matter movement in 2020, in 2019, you had mass movements and full-on revolutions affecting, I think it was a quarter of the countries on earth. I mean, it was uh, massive examples of upheaval. In each of those examples, the missing ingredient wasn't more mutual aid networks or local community activists um, as such, but rather this kind of a political leadership that could connect with that movement. I think one question we should pose is, what does it mean to be prepared for a revolution? I think that you know, Bolshevism as a strategy could be summarized as preparing a revolutionary leadership ahead of events. Well, what, what would it have looked like if we had had a revolutionary leadership prepared, say, when the mass movement in 2020 broke out in the U.S.? Well, yeah, I mean, you can just envision how in city after city, there would at least be um, components of those demonstrations which would have demanded the establishment of a mass workers' party, right? That would have that would have demanded the establishment of a workers' government that that linked capitalism and racism and says that we can only drive out racism by driving out capitalism. Not saying that if we eliminate capitalism, racism has gone overnight, but we're saying the process of the revolution itself would be a step against racism. And then, of course, getting the institutional elimination of capitalism would end the, the material uh, reasons for, for, the, for the continuation of, of, of racism. Absolutely. And in the case of the, the movement in 2020, obviously, there was a lot of, you know, all of the, the, the focus on the question of police terror, on the racism, the structural racism of capitalism. It's something that has to be linked organically with the inequality of capitalism itself. You can't abolish racist policing or, or the daily police terror that black people in this country face while leaving in place the unequal housing and the inequality in wages and the generational discrepancy. I mean, obviously, to address those things, you need social demands that go beyond just policing. We're talking about changing every aspect of society. And how do you struggle for something like that? Well, as Marxists, we would put forward a class struggle you know, method, the fighting methods of the working class, which would mean general strike action, you know, as something that mobilizing the entire labor movement, uh, 10 million people could be organized into the streets, give more structure to the sort of neighborhood defense committees that were popping up organically to some degree. You know, what if you had working class organizations coming together in every major city preparing to take on the question of police violence directly, you know, in a, in a democratic way, taking, basically taking control of society. I mean, when we're talking about a revolution that restructures society, this is something that should be proposed in concrete terms and not just creating community institutions that replace capitalism bit by bit, but understanding that this is the kind of thing that becomes possible in the context of an open revolutionary crisis and in a sense, being prepared means the revolutionary party, the revolutionary element in society is able to say to the working class, look, we live in a, in a burning structure. This is a crisis. This thing is falling down on us. Here's the exit. It means overthrowing this system and creating a new one, moving from capitalism to socialism. That's the exit. And in a moment of, of crisis, it's possible that millions of people 
draw that same conclusion and are saying, okay, well, I'm, I'm willing to take that exit as well. Can I also link that point to, I think, another issue that's raised by, by those who support mutual aid, which is that idea, well, we got to do something now to help people. And we agree, like we're not, we're not, we don't discount that. People need to be helped now. But then the question really is, what can be done to help people? And how does that come about? And the thing is, is if we use this example, for example, the uh, the, the the George Floyd movement, right? There, the, the, the question of help was to put the police a little bit on the back foot at that point, right? So they couldn't just um, easily attack or kill people, right? Because people are watching them, people are mobilized. And what you see over and over again is any form of reform, genuine reform, anything that really improves the lives of the working class today, it's a byproduct of the self-organization of the working class and the struggle of the working class. It's not about, it's really not about um, you know, people sacrificing and, you know, like one section of workers sacrificing, giving to help another section. It's really not that. It's the opposite. It's the it's the self-organization, collective organization, the working class in actual struggle, which forces the ruling class to give some of those reforms in whatever, whatever you know, way that, that shapes. And of course, we as Marxists, we understand, right, the, the money that they use so-called, you know, for that reform comes from the unpaid labor of the working class itself, right? This is all the booty that they've got, the, the money that they've exploited the, the working class through, through its labor. And they have all this money. And the only way to get a, a bigger share in the hands of the working class is for the working class to collectively struggle. That's the way. It's not really through um, a bunch of, you know, workers like dipping into their wallet to help the less fortunate sections of the working class. Yeah, no, this idea of like, we need to do something now, I think is is very prevalent in the mutual aid circles. And I think it's understandable. And, and I think everyone who gets involved in the struggle for socialism has that same opinion. Like, yeah, we do need to do something now. It's not a question of like prolonging anything. But I think there's like, a, there's another part to it, which is that if we're a socialist, if, if we've gone through the experience of the past period, we've that means we've drawn the conclusion that the problem isn't just that uh, you know, resources are, could be shared a bit better here and there and that we can make some small changes. We understand the problem is the whole structure of society. The problem is the whole structure of capitalism. And so our starting point has to be what is necessary to end that entire structure to transform society, to implement a socialist society. And, and in doing so, you know, as, as we've talked about previously, really the question of leadership becomes very apparent, becomes pressing. And I think from there too, it's a question of of limited time and resources, and and the fact that we, you know, we we need to have a a, a clear conception of of what we're doing and why we're doing it. So it's not a matter of um, rejecting the idea that we need to do something, but asking like, what's what's the most pressing thing we need to do? And and in our view, it's it's preparing for whatever comes next. For, you know, for understanding that the energy that erupted in 2020, it hasn't uh, disappeared entirely. It's just it's subterranean right now. It's it's building. And, and we can't say exactly when or how it's going to reemerge, but, uh, but we know that's going to happen. We know capitalism can't stabilize itself. From our perspective, we would say we are doing something now. We're building a leadership. We're building a force that can be more prepared to, to take these ideas and to have more influence in whatever develops. Yeah, i say that one of the core elements of the socialist strategy debate that we've seen unfolding in recent years comes down to the question of reform or revolution, right? It's the question of, do we live in the kind of epoch 
where it's possible to have a socialist revolution, where it's possible for the working class to rise up and transform society. And our starting point is, yes, that's that's exactly what we're fighting for. You know, we have this perspective of a revolution in our lifetime that we're trying to prepare for, but its success depends on mobilizing the whole of the working class. I mean, to transform society, you need to be able to harness the social power that the working class has by the tens of millions. And if we look at that as kind of one of the strategic objectives, if you're going to have a socialist revolution, you need to be able to harness the working class as a whole. The way to get there isn't worker by worker or block by block or building by building, you know, and that's part of the mutual aid conception. I feel like people tend to say we need to get out into our communities and start organizing that way. But that's not really taking a step towards the direction of being a force that can address the working class as a whole or or really become a, a mass party of the working class. It's a different route, you know, and that's that's obviously another big theme at the heart of, of Bolshevism. How do we go from a relatively small minority of Marxists to the kind of force that can address millions of people, that can become the mass banner? And the, that opens up another question, too. It's like, we're, of course, we're not against people getting involved in their community or various mass organizations. The question is, is the basis upon which you do that, right? So like we would say, for example, if, if, there is a, if there are tenant associations being set up in your area and people are socialists and they want to be involved, we would say, of course, go, go get involved with that. But the question is, is what is the basis? A lot of the people who are doing this, they're doing it on, on a reformist basis, right? They're fighting um, shoulder to shoulder with the people for whatever their immediate demands, but, but they are not um, bringing out the broader issues. What we would say is, yes, you fight shoulder to shoulder with people on their immediate demands, but you're at the same time, your role as a socialist is to bring out the bigger picture and say, you know what, no matter what we do, no matter how much we accomplish, unless we get rid of this system, we're not going to have good housing. We need socialist housing. We need a socialist uh, system to transform the housing uh, question. And I would also argue, uh, I think we would all argue that the best reforms we can get, right, or historically this has shown, is that the more the working class struggles and strives to transform society, the more they get in terms of reforms as a byproduct. And then it's exactly the opposite if you try to minimize what the goals are of a particular movement. If you try to accept what is, quote, realistic, in actual fact, you end up getting less right? The ruling class, in order to motivate them to give up some of their wealth uh, that, they've, that they've gained through the exploitation of the working class, uh, um, gets motivated by fear. <laughs> and it's when they see a mass mobilized working class led by revolutionary elements, that's exactly when they start giving the most reforms. Right. They have to feel that their entire power over their system is threatened. And that, of course, is when they start pulling out all the stops, and that's when, yeah, you get serious uh, reforms. In terms of the, the point you were making earlier about sinking roots in the working class, I think that's really a, a big part of the, the strategic debate we've had with the base builders, this idea that one thing is to try and embed yourself in the community, embed yourself in the working class as a socialist. Another thing is, what are you actually relaying? What ideas are you transmitting? What kind of a program are you putting across in your day-to-day -day work? And, you know, I, I think that the reality is that most of these efforts 
they would like to be t- raising questions about the need for a revolution. In practice, does it happen? It doesn't seem to be the case. You know, in practice, you're knocking on doors, you're building a community garden. You might, you know, strive to have some casual discussion with people about if the world were different, we wouldn't have to be meeting our needs with these kinds of initiatives. But that's not really the way to transmit a revolutionary program. Certainly not, you know, in preparation for the outbreak of a mass revolution in society. Best case scenario, if that does happen, it's not leading to an organization of, of people that can fight for this systematically and cohesively. It's, you know, it's fine. I mean, obviously, you, you could have a discussion, you could talk about the root cause of this, and and that's good. But I think what we really need to do is have laser focus on building a coast-to-coast organization that can study these ideas cohesively, that can form a coherent program, uh, and, and that can, you know, prepare on a more kind of long-term scale and, and, and look ahead at yeah, and I, I would say this too. A revolutionary leadership it will not just come together through osmosis. It has to be consciously built, right? And that brings up this question that I think we also addressed it as part of the question and answers on the question of mutual aid. For example, lessons from the past, like the Black Panthers and the Young Lords, right? You know, what's interesting to me is that there are some people in mutual aid who look to the Young Lords or look to the Black Panthers and say, oh, look at this breakfast program that they provided and all that, and they see that as a model for the future. In actual fact, I would argue that the admiration for the Young Lords and the Black Panthers is not really from their breakfast program. It's from the fact that these were revolutionary fighters who went up against the government, went up against the state, and suffered vicious repression, right? It's not what they gave to people. It's what they gave up in terms of their sacrifice to try to build a revolutionary party. And that's where really the real important lessons are to be learned, in my opinion. It's not from the breakfast program. It's the what What were the attempts to build a revolutionary leadership that the Black Panthers and Young Lords tried to do? And what were the mistakes in that, right? And I, and I always want to start out by saying we have nothing but tremendous admiration for these people, self-sacrificing revolutionaries who fought as hard as they did and suffered some of the worst repression. And it wasn't their fault, in my opinion, that they made these mistakes because there was a lot of young people coming together, trying to figure things out, and there was nobody there to guide them. Unfortunately, the groups on the left, the Communist Party, you know, the, the reformist socialists, the sectarians, they had no path forward. So these people were trying to figure things out on their own. But that's where, if you know, I would say a lot of young people in, in looking into mutual aid and looking into the Black Panthers and the Young Lords, you want to look at something, let's study that. Why, after all those struggles, after all the attempts that they, they did to build those, there was nothing left. You know, there was no revolutionary continuity that was able to build from that. There, these are important questions that I think any serious young revolutionary has to really look at. Mm-hmm. And as you said, of course, the, the repression of the state had a big part to, to play in wiping out the Panthers and their, their, you know, there was obviously different currents, but you think of uh, Fred Hampton, you know, coming out in favor of a proletarian international revolution. And he said, we were going to fight capitalism with socialism or Bobby Seale. I mean, there were a number of these Panther leaders who clearly had the the idea of, of a socialist revolution. And in, in addition to that, you need to have a strategy. You need to have I would say, a Bolshevik organization as well. I mean, we, earlier we touched on this question of a cadre organization. Maybe that's something we could develop a bit more. What does it mean to have a Bolshevik organization? How do we actually go from a small force into this massive revolutionary element that can 
address a program to the tens of millions. And I, you know, obviously our historical point of reference is the Bolsheviks themselves, the Russian Marxists and and the role they played in 1917, but also particularly the the decades of preparation that went into that to make it possible for a relatively small number of just a few thousand Marxists to balloon instantly, I mean, in the course of uh, just a handful of months into an organization of a quarter of a million. What are the lessons of that method and that strategy today? How does that apply to socialist fighting in the 2020s for revolution? You know, the Bolshevism, I think, is is extremely important for uh, anybody who really is serious about transforming society to, to study. I mean, you have to look Let's say, let's say, go back since 1871, the Paris Commune, all the way through to today. And you say there's only one positive example where the working class was able to take power in 1917. Every other revolution either led to the working class not being successful in seizing power, or actually, in some cases, they even took power for a short period and then lost it, right? The, 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 the only exception to that was 1917, October Revolution. So we have a lot to learn from Bolshevism in terms of the need to build the kind of leadership, a cadre organization at first, and on the basis of a cadre organization, you can eventually build a mass working class uh, political party that can that can lead the working class to victory. So there's a lot to, to, be, to be studied. And that the, the first and most important thing is theoretical study, right? Study of Marxism. Marxism, Marxist theory, is a guide to action right? It's what can determine our priorities. It determines um, how we can move from where we are today, from small forces into larger forces, into eventual forces that can, can transform society. That, that's the important thing. And when we talk about cadre, cadre comes from the French term, right? Talking about frame, a framework, right? A foundation, right? You can't build a huge building without building a solid foundation, solid walls. And that's what we need to build a foundation for what can be a future mass party of the working class. Um, so we would say it's absolutely important for people who feel that they can do this to come forward, to become cadre, to study Marxist theory. And it's not just a book study, but it's also a study through activism, through action, through various political activity that we engage in. And as we grow, as we get larger, with larger forces, we'll be able to do more. That's right. For, from a Marxist perspective, a revolutionary crisis is a culminating point within the class war. And we know that there are two basic sides to that war. The, the bourgeoisie has its general staff. They have, I mean, we're literally talking about the generals, the Pentagon, the state, the apparatus, right? We're talking about the generals that are trained, the military heads that are trained at West Point, and they're trained very thoroughly with a historical grasp of centuries of battles and, and the art of war and so on. What kind of training does the general staff of the other side of that line have? You know, that's really the question that Bolshevism sets out to to do is to prepare a general staff for the rise of uh, of a revolutionary force that can you know have a counter to the, the immense pressure the social pressure of bourgeois public opinion the pressure to to buckle to collaborate to back down at the culminating point how do you have you know that counter pressure be firm enough be flexible enough to be able to face off against that immense pressure that comes from a class war reaching a, a fevered pitch. The only way you can have that firm of a backbone 
is if that structure, that general cadre foundation, is made up of people that have studied revolutionary history. They've studied theory. They've studied the way that these situations unfold. They've studied previous examples. If you have that kind of training, that kind of political education, you know, as an integral part of the political framework, then you have the kind of uh, force, the kind of organization that can also expand very rapidly because you're talking about a layer of professional revolutionaries in the sense of people who have been dedicated to preparing for this for years. I mean, that's really the secret of the success of 1917, right? Yeah, no, and you can go all, all the way back to like 1901, 1902. Lenin had a clear conception of this. And, you know, so when we talk about how this is the sole positive example of the working class taking power and holding it, it's not accidental because it was a party that had had that discussion explicitly. You know, if you read Lenin's works, Where to Begin, What is to Be Done, he's arguing this in a very clear way, but, you know, this idea of professional revolutionaries of the need for theory, the need for overcoming the spirit of amateurism. And and you see how that, that process, which was not at all linear, was not easy, it was not uh, without without difficulty, but by the time 1917 arrived, they had that basic kind of framework. And they had 8,000 cadres in, in January of 1917. Not a mass force, not, not a mass party by any means, but then that was a year when there was also an organic shift in consciousness and the crisis of capitalism came to a tipping point. And, and so that force was ready. It was prepared, it had studied, had, had trained itself. And, and, uh, and that, that cadre basis was basically able to expand into a mass party in just 10 months when, when the events allowed for that kind of, uh, you know, mass audience for Marxist ideas. If you think about that's in a population of, I think, 150 million at the time was uh, the Russian population. Obviously, the working class was a much smaller segment of that total number. But to think that they started in the outbreak of that revolution with 8,000 members and within less than a year to go from 8,000 to 250,000, you're talking about a layer in society coming to that conclusion very dramatically. I mean, this is a tsunami of people saying, okay, you know what, I agree with the Marxists. And if they're, they're coming to that conclusion because of their experience, because they lived through a revolution. That revolution didn't break the limits of capitalism. Here's an organized force that's very clearly, systematically articulating this idea. You have to go beyond the limits of capitalism at a time when people are ready to hear that message. Then what happens? That's when you know, you have that force expand into really a, a much larger organization. That's really what we're trying to do everywhere in the world. I mean, the international Marxist tendency is trying to establish that kind of an organizational foundation, that preparation to have sort of a, a training grounds for this revolutionary general staff, this idea of having people prepared for events long in advance, studying theory. Yeah, sure, political education is a big part of it. Um, but it's also forming an organization of people that have political skills, that learn what it takes to agitate, to trans transmit ideas, to address mass crowds, to participate in, in, in a strike wave, you know, to put these ideas forward in their trade unions. I mean, th this isn't stuff that you can just pick up spontaneously. It requires dedicated training. Can I just add another point to that, too? It's, it's like, at, rather than this kind of conception, which some people may have, which is, you know, you go to the people, you're one person, then you're going to influence these masses. But look at what happened in the Russian Revolution. You have the party um, wins over the advanced layer of the working class. The advanced layer of the working class 
uh, wins over the mass of the working class. Then the mass of the working class wins over the peasantry. You see how how things flow. That's the, that's the way society changes. It's not again. You have to understand that any any given class in society, it's not homogenous. It's it has various layers and stuff. And so that has to be thought through. And that's why when we say in terms of what our priority should be today, right? The priority needs to be to build that tool, to build that essential tool, that essential leadership tool. What we do in it to build that tool depends concretely with how many resources we have, right? How many members do we have? How experienced are the members? Is everybody brand new or people have 10, 15, 20 years of, of experience? Because there's not one size fits all here, but it has. it's a complicated process but it's a necessary process that we have to engage in. That's right. Like you're saying, in the outbreak of a revolution, you have one layer of the working class, maybe say the most advanced layer, is becomes more solidified in its revolutionary stance, and it's able to make an appeal that resonates in those circumstances with a much broader layer. And then in turn, I mean, you're talking about winning over the whole mass of the population, but you have to start with that one initial layer, being able to put those ideas forward clearly, firmly, systematically, right? Do you have that ready? Talking about priorities, we have no time to spare. That's the goal that we want to have as soon as possible is to have that force in place, a professional revolutionary force that can transmit a revolutionary program. Really, I think that that has to be what all our energy and efforts are going to is preparing that kind of a cadre organization. Yeah, and, and I think this alludes to Another related question, some, some people listening to this, some people interested in mutual aid might argue, well, yeah, we should do that. And why not also pursue mutual aid at the same time? And I would say to that, that, uh, you know, it's not that there's like a, a principled block against mutual aid and the view of Marxism. It, you know, we can conceive of circumstances if you had a much bigger Marxist leadership, if you had roots in the working class, certain forms of mutual aid could possibly play a role in that. It would, it would depend on the uh, specifics of the situation. But in the concrete situation in the U.S. and around the world today, there isn't that kind of you know, large or, or mass Marxist leadership. And so I, I think we do have to ask, what are our priorities? We do have to start from the point of understanding that uh, you know, p- people engaged in this task are going to be workers, are going to be students, they're going to have all kinds of pressures. We know it's not easy. People living under capitalism don't have infinite free time. And what we're talking about, building that kind of professional trained organization of Marxists does take an enormous amount of time. It takes study, it takes discussion, it takes participating in the movement. Like all of these things are going to add up. And, and, I, and I, would, I would argue, in, you know, again, in, in today's context, that that has to be the focus so that we can lay that foundation, which in turn will eventually be able to, uh, you know, to engage in, in other fields of work, essentially. And this is happening at a time when these ideas have more momentum than ever. That's the thing to understand is that for this living generation to talk about socialism in our lifetime, to talk about overthrowing capitalism, that resonates like never before. There, are, I mean, the, the polls that we were referring to earlier, I believe it comes, it comes out to some 35 million young people, millennials and Gen Z, if you want to translate into numerical terms, like 35 million who view Marxism in a favorable light. That is a massive portion of society that despite all the decades of propaganda, despite everything in the mass media telling them that that's, you know, Marxism is this, this demonized thing, they're still open to revolutionary ideas. So could, what would it take to create a force that becomes 
the banner that actually organizes that 30 million into a, a coherent social force, not just some something that's happening, you know, abstractly or, or formless or people, you know, reading about these ideas from a computer screen in their home. I mean, the, 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 what would it take to actually organize that into a social force that can intervene directly in the political landscape? For us, that's the way that we're approaching this question of strategy. The sooner we can organize that banner, and we would say it has to be organized under the banner of Marxism, because that, again, we're, we're, we're talking about organizing on the basis of ideas, on the basis of a shared understanding of history and of approaching society in terms of the class war for the sake of winning that war, you know, for the sake of winning that uh, revolutionary transformation of society and, and ending class society, ending, the, you know, abolishing classes altogether. I mean, ultimately, right, theory is a generalized understanding of the way the world works and how things change. So it's it's absolutely necessary to study that. Otherwise, we're just are we just going to start, you know, fresh? We're not going to learn anything from the history of humanity um, for the, for all these past decades, the history of the the working class movement, the history of the socialism. Are we not going to learn anything? Or are we going to to take that up? And that's the thing. We have limited time, precious time, and it must be used in this direction. Other people in the mutual say, well, well, I'm going to use my precious time to collect um, food, you know, to help feed the people and stuff. But our argument should be that we don't have to do that. There's plenty of food in society. There's, plen- there's plenty of, of clothes. There's pl- there could be plenty of housing, right? In fact, there, there are apartment buildings in, in Manhattan that sit, you know, huge skyscrapers uh, packed with apartments and they're empty, right? Because the rich use it two days a, a year and then they go to their other homes, right? There, there's plenty there. The question is, is we need a workers' government to nationalize the, the the real estate, nationalize the top 500 company, use these resources to meet human needs. Like this this thing about the um, the formula, the shortage of formula, what a ridiculous, in the United States, there's a shortage of formula. I mean, in a planned economy, this would not be a problem. But I know in a monopolistic capitalist economy where you have four companies controlling this, they're, they're question of what they produce and what they distribute. It's all a basis, a question of calculation of profits. But in a socialist society, we don't calculate things from that. We calculate from how many kids are there, how many people need this formula, where do they live? That would be the the driving of the plan, right? So our precious time, you know, we would appeal to anybody who really wants to transform society. You got to use this time that we have to build the kind of leadership that can really direct things in the way we want in the future. And it's definitely a massive task. I mean, this is a, an enormous ambition to say that we want to have a successful revolution in our lifetime, but it's also the kind of task that is worth putting our effort into and, and the worth this prolonged fight. I mean, if not the struggle to overthrow capitalism and actually to transform society, how else do we respond to the crisis that, that we're faced with? How else do we respond to the sense of impasse that society is at in the 2020s? I mean, this is the way to fight back and to actually have a, a revolutionary goal, but to take that goal seriously. So if, if that's you and you're serious about the fight for a revolution in our lifetime, then absolutely get in touch with us. Don't just listen from the sidelines. Don't just read the article. We want you to follow our, our uh, website as well. But get in touch with the International Marxist Tendency. We're fighting in over 40 countries around the world. We have growing forces. Hundreds of people are reaching out to us every month to learn more about getting involved. We invite you to do the same at socialistrevolution.org. Bella, ciao.